In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. I grew up with mountains, and I grew up with clouds. Some would say that my head is still in the clouds, but I come by it honestly. I'm from Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. I grew up on the side of a mountain, actually, in a subdivision in what was called the Capilano Highlands, built on what was once an alluvial delta, where a long-gone river met the sea. And as the glaciers slowly withdrew over the millennia, so did that delta rise to a few hundred feet, a nice flat place to build a few houses in mid-century modern style. That's where I grew up, and it's also where Carolyn and I and our son Eric went when we went back to the West Coast in the 90s for me to go to Regent College and her to get her doctorate. We had our dog with us, and at times uh, our dog's welcome wore a little thin with my father, so I spent a lot of time walking that dog and coming to know some of the paths I hadn't really known as a, as a boy growing up in that area. One day walking, I found that uh, a sign presented itself at the place where the residential streets ended and you could step right into the forest. It said this is a two kilometer path to the top of Grouse or at least to an elevation about 3,200 feet up. It didn't tell me that the vertical incline would be over 30 degrees in places. I was wearing topsiders, some nice loafers, and I had the dog on a leash and I didn't pay much attention to the people who went by me with hiking gear on or 20-somethings in spandex with very, very serious shoes on. I set off and uh, it was a very, very engrossing journey. You have to watch where every foot goes when you're stepping on unconsolidated litter and dodging stones and branches and finding your way up. And you're always facing into the into the mountain itself when you're going up. And I had failed to notice as I went up that suddenly it became very cool. One thing I noticed actually was the screaming in my calves, which at some point said, you're really not up to this. Turn around and go back down. Uh, I don't like conflict very much. That's part of my personality. But as I always say, there's one thing I hate more than fighting, and that's losing. So. I said, I'm going to go to the top of this thing come you-know-what or high water. Well, the high water was there. And as I went up, I felt the water around my face. And suddenly, it became light. It became fresh. I could feel the breeze on my back. And I looked up, and I could see I was going right into that place where the clouds, which blanket those mountains so much in Vancouver, were slowly beginning to make their way up. I persevered, and then I found it got lighter still suddenly. I was in daylight. When I got through the trees, I was in another flat place. The sky was dark blue, and as I turned around at my feet, a sea of clouds extended out right over the horizon. Gone were the beautiful views of the sea and the city, of the sailboats bobbing around, of the cars lining up, at the border to the United States, just a sea of clouds which rolled out like a white billowing sea with the 
jagged peaks of the volcanic mountains, Baker on the south and the mountains of the snow-capped mountains of Vancouver Island to the west. It was a beautiful and exhilarating vision. And it inspired a sense of awe in me that was almost sufficient reward for the trip up, certainly almost for the trip down, which you have made the ascent in topsiders was spent mostly on your rear end. <laughs> well, Jesus takes his followers for that mountaintop experience. The clouds gather around them, and they are treated to apparitions which never greeted me, save maybe in my imagination. Would the disciples know, so overwhelmed were they by what they saw, that the voice which greeted Jesus' baptism in the Jordan is now heard again, proclaiming those same words, more or less. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The words are almost welcoming, but the reaction of the disciples encountering the transcendent is the holy is always the same. That fascination which draws them on is mixed with fear, something that pushes them back. Now, there is maybe not so much of the mysterium tremendum at fascinans in today's culture as there was in days past. Today's church is more coffee house than cathedral, although there may well be a climbing wall for your amusement. And that's fair enough, because Jesus asked the disciples not to share their mountaintop experience as they descend into the valley below. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. But the impression that something of substance has transpired remains. The cross will focus their attention when they get down to that valley bottom and set their faces to Jerusalem. But with the descent of the flames of fire on the day of Pentecost, a narrative arc is completed, one which began with our first reading on that other mountain, Sinai, with Moses' ascent to get the tablets of the law. The Moses experience has been transformative, is vouchsafed by his appearance, a radiance which he does his best to cultivate as the glory fades. It reminds the wandering people of God who are sending their own flames of fire ascending heavenward as they seek through sacrifice to expiate their guilt that fear is a key element of the experience. And the law is meant to build on, not dissipate, that fear. For the law, making explicit what neighbor love and love of God should look like in action, also spells out the consequence of disobedience, of falling short, and that is death. The soul who sins must die. Or, as Paul puts it, sin pays a wage, and the wage is death. Now, the Torah provides about 600 or 700 ways of making an end run around death usually by the death of someone or something else. But the problem remains. There's always some sin in our hearts which can respond even to the holiest and most righteous and pure and good invocation of the law. And given the choice, love or die, the temptation to love quickly turns into something that lacks a little vitality, a little warmth, a little fellow feeling. The motivation is more a matter of keeping up appearances, staring down adrenaline and that tight knot in your gut, 
unless a matter of having your heart set free to love. But for millennia, the church has found its motivation in that same fear of death and of the God who will kill if he must, and if he may, he will, and sin will set him off. Christ comes and Christ goes by way of the cross to intercede where he is now on our behalf far above the clouds in heaven. But we are constantly overshadowed by the sin that never leaves our hearts, by the fear that it is all in vain. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, goes Paul's letter to the Christians in Corinth. And Corinth was the west coast of the ancient Near East. Their minds were hardened, he says, hardened by fear. And the keen awareness of their ongoing failure at best or at worst, their confidence that they had been successful in measuring up to every requirement of the law. The latter is far worse when we get to Jesus. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The veil of the sense of being exposed or the veil of sense of really having got it all together with God and just having to walk in across the finish line. But when one turns to the Lord, he says, the veil is removed because only through Christ is it taken away. We're talking about hardening of the heart, cardiosclerosis, and only through Christ is the heart healed made tender and responsive, ready to receive and to give that love which is the medium of exchange in heaven and on earth, the only thing that will endure when faith and hope have been made irrelevant. The law fails in that which it demands, so Paul teaches us and so the reformers were quick to understand. Fear can drive our actions away from one another and away from God. But for us to be drawn back, there must be something that only the Spirit can give. Love. The love of God in Christ. Love not just as an objective reality written on paper for us to commit to memory like scripture verses cut out with a laser, laser scalpel put under a microscope and memorized verse by verse in some desiccated faithfulness. Rather, a reality experienced in the heart of the believer through the power of that same spirit who inspired the scriptures working in our hearts to begin to understand them. Dispelling the clouds, allowing us to step into the glory of sun and sky, the presence of the Lord. And we beholding are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. The Lord Jesus, not just pleading our case at the Father's throne, but through that same Spirit who empowered him at his baptism, now empowering us to love. Through that same Spirit that obscured by smoke and cloud on Mount Sinai, pushing all save Moses back in fear of their lives, now comes to us, becomes us, abides in us. Through the miracle of Pentecost, transforms us from within, making his desires into ours. The Spirit of grace reminding us that we are loved and that we were loved first before we first loved him. Not when we had succeeded, not when we got our act together and took our first victory lap in finally obeying to the letter those laws of stone. 
But when in our failure we surrendered, acknowledged that we were his enemies, and came to realize that it was when we were his enemies that he loved us, and then he showed us love. One of my teachers at Regent Gordon Fee has said, if we are not at this point, this point when we realize our utter failure to make ourselves righteous in God's eyes, if we are not at this point overtaken by God himself, then all else is lost and we are without peace, groveling before God, living with little real hope and experiencing present sufferings as a cause for complaint and despair rather than for boasting. Without what rectifies this is not simply God's love as objective fact, but that God's love has been poured out as a prodigal experienced reality by the person of the Holy Spirit who God has also lavishly poured into our hearts. It all begins, it's all predicated then on the love of God. It is affected in history through the work of Christ and through the word that God lives us. And it's only through history that that word can be understood. But it's made effective in the lives of believers in the church by the work of the Spirit. Trinity then is the Christian name for God. We look at our mountaintop experience again today. As we stand on this vista, viewing the landscape as it unfolds over Lent, over Holy Week, over Eastertide, over Pentecost, and into the great season we call Trinity, the season in which the Holy Spirit's work comes to fruition. We descend to the cross halfway between heaven and earth in Lent, Jesus rises and ascends at Easter, then the Spirit descends on us at Pentecost, and then that comes that most glorious vision of the distant range of mountains in the Trinity season. If we are Spirit-led and Spirit-filled, we're not just to call ourselves charismatic or Pentecostal, we're to call ourselves Trinitarian. And as we look forward, to the God who is always at work, who as we hear later in Corinthians and in our service, is always making all things new. Who is making all things new? Then we look to his word through the eyes of his spirit for the things that we have not seen in it, for those texts that have become so encrusted by our cultural concerns, those texts which so often seem to leap off the page which are really affirming our flesh and not our spirit. And we are invited to take the scholarship which God has given us in line with the purifying, challenging, convicting work of the Holy Spirit to see where that text is showing us something new, where new light is falling on those texts to extend our journey into the work of being followers of Christ, turning our world upside down, but setting his world evermore on a firm foundation. So let us go into Lent, looking to that spirit to purify us, to scour our souls, and then for the spirit of God to hammer us, us out on God's word as he transforms us again and again into a purer metal, a stronger metal, and a people of God ready to face new challenges, new truths, 
and new tests. Amen.